Welcome to today's A Slice of Medieval. We have a special treat today with our guest, Annie Whitehead. Annie is a historian and novelist, having written four novels and two non-fiction books on the ancient kingdom of Mercia and women in Anglo-Saxon England. And it is to talk about one particular Anglo-Saxon woman that Annie has joined us today, Ethelfled, Lady of Mercia. Thank you for joining us, Annie. Hello, it's lovely to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, you're welcome. I've been looking forward to having you on for quite a while. So for those listeners who have not heard of her, tell us a little bit about Ethelfled and am I pronouncing it properly? Well, how you pronounce it is probably entirely up to you. I, I tend to go with Athelflad simply on the basis that that A diphthong was how Alfred's name was spelt and indeed Athelstan. So my feeling is that it's, a, it's an A rather than an E but I don't think anybody really knows for sure. Mm. Edward the Elder was her brother, but her father was Alfred the Great, who I'm sure everybody's heard of. And we know that Athelflad was the eldest of a lot of children. Um, it seems that they had uh, quite a few who didn't survive, um, and we don't know the exact number, but we do know that she was the eldest. She was, as I say, Alfred's daughter, and her mother, Alfred's wife, was actually a Mercian herself. So already she's half Mercian, born to the King of the West Saxons. But at some point, she was married to the Lord of the Mercians. Now, he wasn't a king. His name, again, most people call him Ethelred. I tend to call him Athelrad, but I might slip up myself during the course of this conversation. He seems to have been an ally of Alfred's and they were working together uh, to push back the, the Danes, the Vikings, as we call them. And at some point, there seems to have been a diplomatic marriage. And she went off to live in Mercia. And that might have been the last we heard of her, as is the way of so many Anglo-Saxon women. But we have a lot of evidence, uh, separate evidence, to suggest that her husband fell ill. And he was ill, incapacitated for quite some time. And it seems like she was ruling on his behalf. And we have quite a lot of evidence for it, some more believable than, than others. And when he died, she took over the kingdom, which is extraordinary. I mean, I, I say this so many times, oh, yes, yeah, she ruled Mercia. This was a big deal. This was actually the first time that a woman, uh, as far as we know, had ruled a kingdom in her own name. This is She wasn't ruling on behalf of a son, um, she wasn't fighting for the right of a son to become king. Whether there were kings and queens of Mercia at this time is, is a whole other debate. Um, some of the sources called her a queen, some didn't. Um, I think it's just semantics. The important thing is that she was ruling and she was ruling in her own name, which is absolutely astounding. So is that what attracted you to her or, or what else attracted you to her story? Well, I think 
there is that major point that she was ruling in her own name. And I'm absolutely fascinated by how that came about, because you know, why was it so unusual and why wasn't more recorded about it? Because it was an anomaly, but also it's like the chroniclers almost shrugged and said, well, yep, so what? This this was really, really unusual. It's never happened before. Uh, hasn't happened again in our lifetime. But whilst we're writing about it, we'll barely mention it. And it's it's such a strange thing that this incredibly unique event happened and yet it was barely recorded by the I say contemporary chroniclers the near contemporary mm. chroniclers but it, it was so staggeringly unusual in a world that I mean women didn't just sit back and you know sew their embroidery they were heavily involved in politics especially you know the the women were the founders of all the early monasteries and they ran them and they had a lot of power mm. and influence. But to actually rule a kingdom in your own name, this was something unheard of. And yet, as I say, the chroniclers were like, OK, so this happened. One of the chroniclers just doesn't even name her, calls her Edward's sister, <laughs> which is just staggering. It's the part of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which was written um, very much on behalf of Wessex, the West Saxons, almost like a court chronicle. Mm. So obviously they're trying to, to big up Edward's part in, in all the proceedings and very much sidelining his sister. If it was such an unremarkable thing and they were so casual about it, why didn't it happen more often? You know, what was it about her that, that she did it and was able to do it? Was it just the circumstances that her husband fell ill and didn't immediately die? But it, but it must have, it must have reflected on her personality and her, her abilities, mustn't it? I mean, I, I think so, absolutely. It, it has to relate to that. Yes, yeah. yeah. She, she couldn't have done what she did without a forceful and determined personality. Mm. I'm absolutely convinced mm. of that. And, and the yeah. fact that the Mercians were obviously happy to be led by a woman. Yeah. And in those days, of course, it wasn't. You didn't become king just because your father or your brother had become king. You had to be elected. There was no primogeniture. So there, there would have been, mm -hmm. you know, uh, leaders of erstwhile tribes because it, it hadn't been that long since it had been a tribal society. Her, let me get this right, her mother's father was a tribe leader. So there must have been men who felt that they might have a claim mm -hmm. to the throne. And yet... They, they didn't step forward and, and sideline her. They they were happy to be led by her, which is just a phenomenal achievement. She must have been yeah. a very, very forceful, yeah. persuasive woman as well. And, and so determined to, to step up and, and do what she did is incredible. Is it possible that uh, the circumstances contributed to it in that perhaps there were several men who rather fancied their chances, but they couldn't get sufficient support from the others. And therefore she was, if you like, a compromised candidate that nobody, nobody really wanted, but nobody could actually argue against because it would let somebody else in that was perhaps a rival. It's perfectly possible. Yes, you know, leave, leave the status quo and don't upset anything. I mean, we think her husband fell ill round about 9.02 and he didn't die until 9.11. So he was he was there. And if we listen to the Irish sources, 
they say that uh, in 907, so right in the middle of that period of his illness, that he was directing what was going on, that she was sending troops into... So Chester had been overrun by... For the sake of argument, let's just call them the Vikings. It's, it's not technically correct, but it'll That's do. That's a whole other episode. <laughs> exactly. Um, but we, we were told that in 907, Chester was restored. In other words, wrested back from Viking control. And there's this wonderful story about how she sent troops into Chester and they hurled various things at the Vikings, uh, beer, um, which seems a bit of a waste to me, bees, they, they set bees on them. But it does sound like when you pull all these sources together, it does sound as if her husband is directing the strategy, telling her what to do, but that she's actually carrying out his orders. So I think it's not like husband dies another man takes over. I think there's there's been a long period where she's been acting mm. on his behalf, in his mm. name. And so this would have given everybody time to get used yeah. to the idea that she's now in charge, she's running the show, and actually she's not doing mm. a bad job. And the other thing is we, we don't actually know very much about the leading um Elderman or you know, nobility at the time that the names don't really seem to to pop out at us so we we don't really know what else was going on but clearly for whatever reason they were you know allowing her to rule or she was she had men who were supporting her who didn't want to you know stake their own claim but of course we must also remember that she had a very very powerful brother Mm. And when her husband died, Edward took over London and Oxford, so major centres of Mercia, but he left the rest alone. You know, he could have steamed in, he could have put an elderman in charge in his name, answerable to him, but he didn't. And again, to me, that speaks volumes about A, the relationship between brother and sister, and B, her personality and her ability to do the job. I mean, when Edward first became king, when Alfred died, he was very busy. Their cousin rebelled against him, um, said that he had a greater claim to the throne. So in the early days, I think Edward probably needed her support. And I think mm. we underplay the Mercian role in all this at our peril, because I don't think Edward could have done it without her, because he would have been stretched too thinly. He needed someone there that he could rely on. And again, speaks volumes that 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 person was his sister she was his ally they worked in partnership had this wonderful strategy for for pushing back the invaders and he i don't think he could have done it without her i'm sure i've said this before sharon somewhere along the line in a podcast we've done but is there any significance to the fact she is his elder sister so in other words he has grown up with her as the one in charge yeah. as Families do. If you've got an older sister, she's often the one that calls the shots. And I just wonder whether that has any, any, any effect at all on their relationship. It's a very interesting point. It's not one that I really thought about before. But I do think that family dynamics obviously play a huge part. Hmm. But also, when you think how many women have been sidelined or, or didn't step forward. I mean, we, we have a lot of really 
powerful women who ruled on behalf of their sons mm. and retained influence even after those sons got married. You know, no, no daughter-in-law of mine is going to push me out of the way <laughs> kind of attitude. Um, so there's there's a lot that we don't know and we have to think about that they were real people and as you mm. say the, the real family dynamics and yes she was his elder sister I think it's possibly more that by the time he became king and established his rule she was already yeah. learning the ropes and and ruling Mercia her husband was still there still alive I assume that what must have struck him down was something akin to uh, perhaps a stroke mm. Because he obviously could no longer lead the troops himself. And he stayed alive for some nine years after whatever struck him down. It's a long time, isn't it? It is a long time. Long so time. I don't think it's obviously not a battle wound, but clearly something that stopped him physically leading the kingdom, but obviously still able to, to direct what was going on. So I suspect something like mm. a stroke. But it gave her this great long run-in period where she was learning how to rule with him still there. And Edward mm. would have watched that and would have seen it. So, yes, I think you're right. Eldest sister, definitely. And, and the eldest in a family um, does have that sort of gravitas. Yeah. I know of which I speak because I'm the youngest of three. So I have a totally different outlook on life. <laughs> but yes, I, I think that the family dynamic was, was hugely um, important. It's interesting, actually, you're just talking about Ethelred and whether or not he had a stroke. I think a stroke is entirely, it, it just seems like the logical explanation. Was Ethelred older than Ethelfled? Because the problem is, I think of Ethelfled as the last kingdom, and they seem to be of an age in that. Well, most of the time, the women married men quite a lot older than them. So that would explain if Ethelred was, say, 10, 20 years older than Ethelfled, then a stroke is definitely more than likely, isn't it? Yes, I, I think he was older than her. I think he's probably more the same age as her father mm. because they had been working together for quite some time before the marriage mm. took place. We don't know very much about him. I, I remember that the first time I ever heard of him, it, um, one of my lecturers said, oh, he just rode onto the pages of history from nowhere. There are some thoughts now about where he might have come from, that he was descended from a, a family of eldermen from the kingdom of the Huiche, mm. which is sort of based around Gloucestershire, um, got absorbed into Mercia. Again, probably from one of these tribal families because Mercy was very much a sort of federation that gradually yeah. came together as one kingdom but we don't know much more than that about him but what we can say is that he was fighting uh, alongside Alfred and later on Edward as well so the three of them were working together we know that some of the Welsh princes had submitted to him initially and then went to Alfred complaining about his tyranny and, and could Alfred protect them so he was obviously <laughs> an independent leader. There are suggestions that he was um, going off into Wales. Um, Mercians had this long complicated history with Wales. They were either fabulously best friends because they were next to each other or fierce enemies. But there's been a lot of independent action. And the very fact that he wasn't a king, but he clearly, again, had Mercia right behind him supporting mm. his leadership. And I think he must have been older than her to have established all of that before he came to Alfred's assistance they they seized control of London 
and that we think is round about the time that the marriage took place so I think he must have been older 15 20 years maybe older than her mm, that makes sense so to what extent was Athelflaed an integral part of her brother's plans to unite England was it teamwork or Edward ordering Athelflaed around well, I think, as as we've said, I, I don't think Edward was in a position to order her about. And I think people do forget Mercia's contribution. It, it was absolutely crucial. Edward could not have done it without her. Early on in his reign, he was being challenged. Athelflaed, I think, was... She was acting independently of Wessex. It wasn't all about Wessex. You know, Mercia had its own concerns. I think they probably had meetings. Mm. They probably planned their strategy. But she was the one who was coordinating this. What what she's mainly known for is the, the borough building campaign. So building or fortifying existing towns um, to, mm. to give a really good, solid base from which to repel um, the Danes and she started doing that even while her husband was still alive so the year before he died she had built a borough at a place called Breensbury which location now we're not too sure about and when you look at how much was done it is clear that Edward could not have been directing the whole thing because he had his hands full when her husband died he was in a stronger position as we mentioned earlier but he still didn't take over the whole of Mercia, mm. either because he couldn't or because he didn't feel the need to. And the two of them were working together, uh, building these uh, fortifications. When you look at them on a map, they both of them sort of built a, a, a defensive ring around their own territories. So Athelflaed was doing that in, in southwest Mercia, which was still free. Mm. Edward was doing yeah. it in, I suppose, what we would now call the home counties. Mm. And then the two of them, pushed north in a pincer movement. So Athelflaed came up sort of Merseyside round to Runcorn and then down. Edward pushed up and then they sort of met in the middle in the East Midlands and the, the so-called five boroughs where the Vikings had really established their townships. And, and so it was coordinated. It was strategic. Was it all Edward's idea? I doubt it. Because, as I say, she'd already started doing this work while her husband was still alive. And to my mind, she's thinking about what's what's best to protect her own country, her own people. Mm. They must have met. They must have come together. We know that... Um, there were certain activities going on in Mercia that Edward was clearly in charge of. I mean, you mentioned the Last Kingdom. It did show a famous battle at Tettenhall mm. in 910 with Athelflaed there leading the Mercians. I don't believe that she did that. But also there's no mention of Athelflaed being there. And it does look very much like Edward was leading a combined force of Mercians and West Saxons. So... Yes, they were working together. Was he nominally in charge? I think by that point, yes, he probably was. But I don't think he was necessarily telling her what to do. Mm. I think she had plenty of ideas of her own and was still acting reasonably independently. But they were working together. It was such a coordinated, such a strategic campaign. Mm. I don't think either one of them could have done it without the other. I think they were very much sort of codependent. Mm. But presumably, there were Mercians who didn't necessarily agree with that strategy. There were Mercians who must have thought, well, you know, what's in it for Mercia? So when defending Mercia is very different from defending Wessex. Mercia is a very difficult place to defend, isn't it? Because you've got the Welsh, as you said, on one side, 
you've got the Vikings, and, and you're still not entirely sure about the West Saxons, really, <laughs> at times. So, you know, it's, a, it's much more difficult for the Mercians than it is for the West Saxons with their coastal boundary and so on. So maybe, maybe she smoothed the waters a bit to get that what was essentially what was a West Saxon policy applied through Mercia. Well, I think there was self-interest because the reason it's called the last kingdom is because famously Wessex <laughs> wasn't actually invaded, whereas half of Mercia was already uh, being mm. controlled by, I'll, I'll say the word again, I don't like using it, but <laughs> the Vikings. But it's very interesting what you say, because that rebellion early on in Edward's reign was by um, Edward Sinatherflad's first cousin. Yeah. So he was descended from Alfred's brother and considered that he had a better right to rule than Edward. But fighting alongside him was a Mercian nobleman whose name began with B. It sounds you know, completely inconsequential, but there was a branch of the Mercian royal family whose kings all had names beginning with B. And in fact, it was Athelflaed and Edward, Edward's uncle, Burgred, who was forced to flee when the Vikings uh, took over Repton in 874. So it is possible that this man fighting alongside this rebellious cousin, who had a lot of support actually from the uh, the um, Northumbrians and therefore mm -hmm. Danes and Vikings, that this Mercian might also have been saying, well, that if, if I support you, will you help me get my kingdom back or mm. let me have the kingdom that I feel entitled to? It didn't work out well for either of them. They, <laughs> they were both killed in battle. Um, mm. So that was the end of that. But we don't know. There might have been some simmering resentment. And it's it's a very difficult relationship because at this time you've got a brother and a sister. You know, one's ruling one kingdom, one's ruling the other. Mm. But things became a little bit more complicated later on when eventually Athelstan became king of both. Yeah. Athelstan, we know, grew up in the Mercian court we actually only have one source that, that tells us that for certain but other indicators make it seem as if it was probably the case now Athelstan when he finally became king was not actually initially recognized in Wessex mm -hmm. there is one chronicle that, that actually doesn't even mention his reign at all so it's again it's families because he's got half brothers but yeah. he was accepted and elected by the Mercian council but really had to fight I think there was quite a lot of uh, murky goings on shall we say in order to <laughs> remove certain rivals um, and struggled to, to gain acceptance in Wessex so it was far from a done deal. And, and even further on into the 10th mm. century, you still got indications that there is a lot of Mercian nationalism, for want of a better word. And this idea that suddenly everybody was one great big happy kingdom and everyone was happy to be ruled by the same king. I don't think that's the case. And, and I think mm. there's this, this, it's not about territory. So these are not, even when they become kings of England, they're not calling themselves that. They're calling themselves the kings of the English. She's the lady of the Mercians, not the lady of Mercia. The boundaries between the kingdoms were very flexible for a long time. Mm -hmm. What was important was the people that you ruled. Mm -hmm. You were the people's leader, not the ruler of the territory. And so 
attitudes like that will take a long time to change. You know, uh, we are us and they are them. And all right, we're fighting alongside each other for now doesn't mean we want to stay like that forever. So, yes, I think it's quite possible that there are a lot of, of Mercians who resented the interference and, and the power of the West Saxons. That makes it all the more remarkable, though, doesn't it, that they accepted Athelflaed? Because, yes, her mother was a Mercian, but she was the daughter of the King of Wessex, and yet she managed to persuade the Mercians that she was for them. <laughs> she did. But what is interesting was that she chose to be buried next to her husband. Mm-hmm. You know, there was no question of her going back to Wessex. I think she obviously endeared herself to the Mercians somehow we don't know I mean I, I I would love to find out how she achieved that obviously mm-hmm. I've, I've imagined certain scenarios when I'm writing about her in fiction but yes you're absolutely right I, I think it helped that she was half Mercian it certainly did with Athelstan because not only was he brought up there but it, there's every likelihood that his mother again was Mercian mm-hmm. there is a theory I, I don't entirely hold with it but there is a theory that earlier on in Mercian history the royal line um sort of came down the female side Mm -hmm. it doesn't entirely convince me but it's certainly true that women and their status was incredibly important and men that the kings thought very very carefully about who they married because these women brought their status with them into the marriage Mm -hmm. and you could argue that the fact that these people had mercian mothers was perhaps more significant than they had west saxon fathers it's it's Mm. just an idea um as i say i'm not sure it holds that much water but certainly we see especially in the early period when the kings are trying to establish themselves they are thinking long and hard about the wives that they are choosing another fact that's interesting just leading on from that is when athelred and athelflaed were married it's the first instance really that we have of a royal Again, they didn't use this word, but for the sake of argument, princess married a Mm non-royal. And it suggests that Ethelred was something much more than a mere elderman. As I say, not all the sources give him the title of king, but he was clearly a step above, you know, your your average nobleman. And it wasn't until later on um, when Ethelred the Unready, bless him, um, married off two of his daughters to noblemen. That was really the first time that that had happened. Um, so I think, again, it it says something about these people that, that Ethelred was really much more than just the leading nobleman. He was a, a, a tier above that. And as I say, I think it's hugely significant that she had Mercian credentials mm-hmm. through her, her mother's family, who were probably much more revered and respected in Mercia than they would have been in Wessex. I mean, Alfred's biographer um, famously didn't even name Athelflaed's mother. Um, He wrote an awful lot about her. He was contemporary. He was living at Alfred's court. He was writing about Alfred. He was writing about the family and the children, but he he just didn't mention the name of Alfred's wife. But I think she would have been remembered and respected and her whole family in Mercia. And the fact that Athelflaed was born of that family probably gave her the credentials she needed but again personality must have played a huge part in it when athelflaed dies she's briefly succeeded by her daughter elfwin or is that alfwin 
anyway, but it's very brief. And and then she sort of disappears and Edward seems to take over. Why do you think that was? I think there's several reasons. Firstly, and I should make this point, a woman did succeed a woman. That Mm. didn't happen again until Tudor times. So that was hugely significant. We have a section of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which is known as the Mercian Register, and which was writing in Mercia from the Mercian point of view. And it is absolutely adamant that Alfwyn was deprived of all authority. So as far as the Mercians were concerned, she was the rightful successor. But I think a couple of things were going on here. I don't think she necessarily had the same strength of character as her mother. Obviously, she was a lot younger, perhaps didn't have necessarily the same experience, although we know she was on campaign with her mother because there's a charter issued from one of the the fortifications that was being built and Alphen was there almost as if she was being trained up by her mother. Do we have any idea how old she was when her mother died? No. No, absolutely not. Tantalising. The only (laughs) thing I would say is it's more than likely that she must have been born before her father's illness, mm-hmm. so before 902. And if she was born, let's say, in 902, then she'd have been 16 when her mother died. And I think that's probably the youngest that she would have been. Mm. Yeah. But we, we don't know any more than that. They, they yeah. don't give us a lot of dates, no. unfortunately. Because <laughs> they assume that we know, because, you know, they think, oh, well, these people were there, they know. <laughs> Um, so yes, I think her youth, I think the fact that by this stage, um, and it's a very important fact, Edward was not only in a much stronger position, but he also had adult sons who could A, fight for him, B, were potentially looking for kingdoms of their own. And of course, that that is essentially what happened, that Athelstan then took over. Mm. So I, I think the odds were stacked against Alfwyn. And I think this this personal relationship between brother and sister obviously was severed when Athelflaed died Mm. and Alfwyn as I say had her mother lived a bit longer and continued you know training her for the role as it were then things might have been different but say Edward was in a much stronger position his sons were all grown up the Vikings had been pushed back and I think it probably changed his way of thinking Mm. you know it it was a, a a new era that was being ushered in once his sister died. So I, I don't think poor Alfred stood a chance, really. I guess the other thing is the the next thing that was going to happen was Alfred was going to get married to somebody, and who she married might well have made a difference to uh, Edward's policies, because if she married a leading Mercian who then thought perhaps he ought to be uh, in a position of authority rather than his wife. That could easily have changed the dynamic between the two states. It could have done. And and that must necessarily lead us to think what was going through Edward's mind. Mm. Was it always his plan that eventually Mercia would mm. come under West Saxon control? Was he happy to work alongside his sister whilst that was working? You know, we, we have to question what his, his long-term goal was there was certainly a lot of um, resentment. I mean, he he died on campaign putting down a rebellion in Mercia. Mm. We don't know who was leading that, but I, I, I think we have to question his motives. Perhaps his sister actually was just incredibly useful to him. Yeah. Um, as I say, he was being stretched very thinly. He could not have done what he did without her assistance. 
but perhaps his long-term goal was always to absorb Mercia into Wessex. And yes, you're absolutely right. Alfwyn then, depending on who she married, would have been an enormous threat. Mm. So what did he do with her, do you think? Well, I shouldn't say too much because actually that is going to form part of my next novel that I'm... (laughs) So I won't say too much about that. The Mercian Register is absolutely clear. She was taken into Wessex and most people assume that that means off to a nunnery, mm-hmm. which wasn't a, which wasn't a bad life. You know, it, it, the, the nunneries were, were quite nice places to be, and a lot of women opted mm. to, to go and live there. There are a couple of, of tantalising um, suggestions, which, again, I'm not sure they hold too much water. There is a, a charter that's dated from King Edward's reign. So he was the last of Edward the Elder's children, and he had a lot. But there's this charter, which is a grant given to a religious woman by the name of Alfwyn. Mm-hmm. And I think that the dates possibly do fit. It might have been her, but there's no reference to the fact that she's a, a royal relative. So it's it's a little bit dubious, that one. There's another theory, which I, I, I don't agree with, but some people think, let me get this right, Edred was the last of Edward's children. Um, but the second to last, Edmund, was killed when he was a young man and left uh, two very young sons behind and they were fostered and one of them was fostered by the elderman of East Anglia who was such a powerful man he had the epithet half king so he was Athelstan half king Um, but actually this small royal boy was not fostered by Athelstan but actually were told by his wife and her name was Alfwyn. And some people do think that this Alfwyn and Athelstan's daughter were one and the same. I have problems with that because I say Athelstan half-king. He had served under several kings. He was a very, very prominent elderman in charge of a great sway. I mean, in all of East Anglia. I'm not entirely convinced that having gone to the bother of removing Alfwyn from Mercia because she was perceived as some kind of threat to Edward's authority, that she would then be allowed to marry the second yeah. most influential man in the kingdom. Mm. So I, I think, again, that's probably highly unlikely. I think the half-king was too powerful to have had a, a wife with such, uh, you know, an unusual pedigree so it's not a hugely common name Alfwyn compared with some I mean Sharon as you know very well there's so many Athelievers it's ridiculous they weren't very imaginative at times the English were they (laughs) (laughs) well (laughs) but I I will never know we'll never know which which is a fiction writer's (laughs) heaven because we can make stuff up but yes, the, the Mercy Register was clear. She was deprived of all authority and she was taken into Wessex. Mm. What that means, we don't know. But I, I suspect mm. a nunnery. That's with my non-fiction <laughs> hat on. Once I get my fiction hat on, it might be a different story. Oh, I'm looking forward to that already. <laughs> That's the beauty of fiction. You can imagine all the options and have an interesting story with it. Absolutely. So... How important is it that we remember Athelflaed? Was she that significant? Now, I always think that with Athelflaed, we haven't, a lot of people, until the last kingdom, thank you, Bernard, a lot of people are like, we've never heard of her. And she is in the record, but 
is it recently that we have started looking at her or have we always known about her? Very interesting question. I mean, when I wrote my novel about her, um, I had a panic halfway through and thought, this is this must have been done before. And I searched and I searched and it hadn't. And I found that absolutely amazing. Um, I think it's hugely mm. important that we remember her. I mean, it, it didn't happen again that a woman ruled a kingdom. So in, in that sense, she didn't start a trend. But it does give us an insight into the mindset of the Anglo-Saxons that they were prepared to allow a woman to rule in her own name. And as I said, I always love to point this out. She was succeeded, albeit briefly, by her daughter. And it could have been a completely different situation, you know, had Edward not mm. decided to steam in and, and take control. So, yeah, I think it's it's all part of this fascinating paradox that, that she's this incredibly important trailblazer and that then largely got forgotten. I mean, some of the later chroniclers really went to town and Henry of Huntingdon wrote this wonderful poem about her comparing her to Caesar. He was writing in, I think, the 12th century. Um, yeah. So they, they mm. did. And it, what's noticeable is that all these later Anglo-Norman chroniclers, so 11th, 12th, 13th century, people like William of Malmesbury and Roger of Wendover and, say, Henry of Huntingdon, they all loved her. And there were an awful lot of Anglo-Saxon women that they didn't love, accused them of witchcraft and murder <laughs> and all sorts of nonsense. Yeah. Um, but she, nothing bad was written about her. But then, as we get later on, nothing was written about her. And I just, I really don't understand mm. it. Because as I say, either it was a really unusual thing, in which case, why not mention it more? Or it wasn't an unusual thing, in which case, why didn't it happen more often? And so her story is completely unique. Mm. It's It's amazing to think that this that it, it happened at all and I think most people who haven't heard of her would perhaps be surprised that it happened look at the trouble yeah. that um the Empress Matilda had trying to establish her right you know her father Henry I had mm. declared her his heir um obviously thought she was capable of doing the job managed to get all his nobility to swear to her but then it all broke down and she really really struggled mm. and in the end you know the settlement was only sorted out when she agreed that her her son would take over so i think it says a, a lot to say yeah. about the anglo-saxon mindset mm. that they were mm. prepared to accept this situation at all mm -hmm. why it didn't happen again we can't say but the fact that it happened at all i think is hugely significant and and yeah she she genuinely needs to be remembered and um, respected for what she did. Well, I think also when you said about Empress Matilda, she was she was in my mind at the same time as you were talking about it because I think it's interesting that when she did get very close to the throne in 1141, she wasn't declared Queen of England. Mm. She was declared Lady of the English. And you can imagine that they were all sat there going around, well, if we link her with Athelflaed, then it will be more acceptable than if we, you know, make her queen because we've already got a queen. But we're harking back to Athelflaed and she's Athelflaed you. You're looking at the history and saying this is, she's the successor. Yes, absolutely. I think it's hugely significant that they have that same title. And mm. it also, I always argue this, that just the fact that Athelflaed wasn't called a queen, neither here nor there. She was acting as a queen. She was... Um, 
thought of by the, the Welsh and the Irish analysts as a queen, but this title lady is hugely significant. The lady of the English, mm. that's, that's, that's the top job. There's another one, Joan, Lady of Wales, the um, illegitimate daughter of King John. Dana Messer did um, a biography of her, and she argues in there that Joan also was a queen, but that it's not the title, it's the position. Absolutely. So just you don't have to have the title of queen. It's the position, it's the duties you perform that make you the queen. It is, it is. So it doesn't matter that you've got the title. Like Athelflaed, Matilda and Joan, they acted as queens. Yeah. And we have a lot of evidence that suggests that some royal women were called queen. Mm. You see them in the witness list of charters and they're called Regina, which, you know, literal translation, queen, but they didn't hold any of the power Mm. that these women that you mentioned did. So what that title actually meant, um, I say we we could do a whole other podcast about (laughs) that. You know, what what, what does queen mean? I mean, Asa famously said that the the wives of the kings of Wessex were not called queen. Mm. And this was because um, one of the one of their number had um, disgraced herself. She'd accidentally poisoned her husband, the king, and she got sent off abroad in disgrace. It just so happens, actually, that um, she was a Mercian. And I'm, you know, I'm not the one to say that Asa was biased, but he was. Asa was definitely biased. <laughs> yeah. Also, this this husband, interestingly, he was a, a king of Wessex, the king of the West Saxons, but his name was Beatrice. And again, this mm. is a, a B name. It's very, very similar to a lot of the, the so-called B kings who ruled in Mercia. And I'm absolutely convinced uh, his wife was a daughter of Offa, Offa the Great. I suspect strongly that he wasn't even a, a West Saxon. I think he was a Mercian puppet installed by Offa. And therefore, Asa had no great reason to look back on that period um, with any fondness and, and wanted to play it down. And actually... He wasn't telling the truth because there are some wives of the kings of the West Saxons who were, as I say, called queen, even during Asa's lifetime. So it's not strictly true. I think it was it was just a, a story to dismiss the Mercians full stop. But like I say, that that, that word queen does not necessarily infer power no. and agency. Mm. It's, as, it's exactly as you said, it's not about the title, it's about the job that they're doing. Yeah. I think we find that the reason why, why we don't have any queens, ruling queens, as it were, after that period is that the Catholic Church has become much more aggressive, probably the wrong word, but, but assertive about the role of women. And throughout the rest of the Middle Ages, well, mm. most of the rest of the Middle Ages, the church is a force against women being in power. There's not very little question about that. And I think that has not yet been established as firmly by the 11th century uh, and certainly before. So I think that's, that is a big change, which influences the way men think about women being in power, which maybe wasn't didn't exist in the same way in Athelflaed's time. Yeah, I think it was um, the, the historian Matt Lewis who pointed out that church mm. attitudes towards women changed enormously yeah. in the 12th century. And I mentioned earlier about all the um, original abbeys and monasteries were founded 
uh, almost exclusively by royal women. Um, you've got the likes of St Hilda or Hilda of Whitby, um, hugely powerful, uh, member of a really mm -hmm. powerful royal family. These women were often looking after what were known as double houses mm. that had uh, monks and nuns you are usually living in separate buildings but not always and then gradually gradually these began to be taken over by men a lot of the the royal abbesses offers wife she had a big falling out with the church mm. and and mm. like you say the the attitudes especially once we get into the anglo-norman period yeah. church attitudes changed and i think women did suffer as a consequence of that a lot of people disagree with me, but I think on the whole, the Anglo-Saxon women fared better in their society and under their laws than perhaps the, the early Anglo-Norman women did. And so I think there was a, a, a different mindset, a different attitude. And also we have to remember that the vast majority of the chronicles, the documentary evidence that we have, comes to us from the Anglo-Norman chroniclers or later so already there's this gap um, and a, a difference in in mindset uh, and most of them almost all of them are, are monks as well yes <laughs> although um, I think uh, it was Michael Wood who argued that the Mercian register may well have been written by nuns and we do we do know that there were female scribes um, there was a, a lovely example of a, a skeleton um, being discovered, the, the Bluetooth nun, as she was called. <laughs> she, was, she was from the 10th century. And they, they worked oh, yeah. out that the reason her teeth were blue was because she was constantly licking her, her, her pen or her, her paintbrush as she was writing. Mm. Going back to St Hilda of Whitby, um, obviously 7th century, so a long time before Athelflaed. Um, but Whitby's been excavated and... There's a lot of evidence for writing there, you know, um, styli and um, book clasps. They obviously had a library. They uh, wrote, I think it was a, a biography of Pope Gregory. Yeah. Um, I might be wrong on that. But yeah, lo lots of evidence for female literacy and for female scribes. So again, that's probably something that we can't say about the post-1066 period. Mm. And the Mercian Register being written by a woman would explain where we have so much information on Athelflaed in it. <laughs> it would, it would definitely. I mean, obviously, clearly written by a Mercian partisan, that we can say mm. for sure. But yes, it's, it, it's, it doesn't pull its punches, you know, that she was deprived of all authority. And uh, yeah, it's, it tells us so much. Without that, we would know virtually nothing about Athelflaed. We really wouldn't. And it, it's such a shame. So the, the main version of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle barely mentions her. And when yeah. it does, it just talks about Edward's sister, because obviously, you know, it's it's commissioned by the West Saxons. It's written in Wessex for presumably what they thought was just a West Saxon audience. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, there, there's, there's definitely <laughs> politics at play there. There always is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, all your books fact and fiction are based in that period, the Anglo-Saxon early medieval period. What is it that attracts you to the period, aside from Athelflaed, obviously? Well, it might sound tough, but earlier we mentioned the names, and, and part of it is the names. I know for most people they're very confusing, um, but for me they sound noble and ancient and descriptive, and it's almost like it's some, something to live up to. You know, we, we name this child... Uh, noble stone um, live up to that and of course Athelstan 
which is a translation of Noble Stone, absolutely did live up to that. Um, I'm aware that there is a barrier. There's a, a line drawn across history in terms of you know, 1066. That's, that's when mm. almost everything about life changed and that means that the anglo-saxons feel even more removed to us even more far away but we think nothing of their culture survives but it does and not just in terms of what's been dug up you know with the sutton who burial and the staffordshire hoard and all these lovely jewels and treasures their legal system was incredibly structured their administrative system worked really really well um i was reading a conversation just the other day about um a massive hoard of coins that contained uh, lots and lots of coins with Harold II's name on, so Harold Godwinson. Yes. And when you think how little time he actually spent mm. being king and how much of that time was actually uh, peaceful and restful, the fact that coins were still being minted in his name, you know, the, the country rumbled on no matter what was going on at the top, all these systems were still in place providing security and continuity. There's a mythical element um, about this period, and we've got Mr Tolkien to thank for that. <laughs> um, but for me, I'm actually interested more in, in the real people and getting away from that sort of mythical, mystical, magical thing. They, they spoke a language that is closer to ours than most people would actually realise. So for all those confusing names, most of, of what I'm saying to you now, I'm using words that are have come to us from Old English uh, with a bit of Old Norse. You know, we mm. have to reluctantly admit that the Vikings came and they <laughs> stayed and they influenced the language. But I mentioned earlier this this idea that their their attitudes and their mindset was significantly different from the Normans who arrived in 1066. And for me, that's interesting as well, because, I mean, I'm not saying that in Anglo-Saxon England, women had the votes um, or any of that, but they did have significantly more freedoms. And I think society on the whole was perhaps a, a, a nicer um, institution than certain later periods I mean women kept what they took into a marriage provision were made was made for for children if they were um, the victims of divorce or bereavement I'm not saying it was a wonderful place to live because obviously there was dirt and disease um, and in a lot of ways it was a primitive society but it was also very sophisticated uh, very well organized yeah they 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 just as a people they fascinate me in a way that I'm sorry to say this Sharon because I know you write a lot about them and, and Derek too uh, that, that later periods just don't quite do it for me somehow and I think it probably is because of this idea that the women had a better or a bigger part to play and and were listened to you know much of that wasn't recorded by the later chroniclers but but what we do know suggests that women wielded huge influence and had a great deal of say about their lives and and even influenced policy as well i mean it is an attractive period i mean when you think about it in terms of place names i mean the pattern of english towns and and places was that they're mostly saxon or anglo-saxon names that we have yes. i mean that yes they've got influences of traces of rome and all the rest of it but you know the, 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 a lot of them vast majority are saxon yeah so that laid down what the places we know today mm. were there then 
Yes, they were. And we're using a very similar word to, to describe yes, them. Yes, we, we are. And, and, and that just, yeah, it, it reinforces that idea of continuity. So although there was this mm. massive you know, line drawn across history, I mean, everyone, if, you, if they know one historical date, it's 1066. Yeah. But actually, so much did carry on. And it, it, it's just this idea of continuity. There's a, a lovely, lovely church in Deerhurst in Gloucestershire, which is heavily associated with those people I was talking about earlier, the Huiche. And I've, I've written about it in fiction and non-fiction. And you go and sit in that church and chances are it'll be empty and you can just sit and, and soak up. There's a lot of the existing Anglo-Saxon architecture there. And they have had services continuously. They have had a congregation since Athelflaed's time. It is still a working, thriving church and a church community. And it is, it, as I say, it's, it's just a wonderful experience to go and sit there and soak up all that history. But it's not yeah. dead. You know, the, it's still going on. So, yeah, I think there's, there's, there's a huge connection to the past. If we just sort of skip over that bit <laughs> that's uh, described in the bio tapestry, you know, we, we can see lots of, of similarities. I mean, the basis of our legal system started mm. with the Anglo-Saxons, this idea of finding 12 witnesses mm. to swear for you. Our administrative system, our shires, our counties these all came into being pre-1066 so there is there's a lot that is familiar and as you say uh, you know the, our place names our language we, we can still see little nods I mean Mercia no longer exists but it is still used I mean it's the West Mercian police force yes. down in the Midlands <laughs> you know and I believe that mm. um in parts of the south it's the wessex constabulary well, wessex is used all over the place yeah i, I think it's part wessex of the, water yeah <laughs> they they gradually the kings of wessex became the kings of england but it was a very very gradual process and i'm not mm. sure even to this day that people in the north would say that they were part of that kingdom you know the, the north south divide is, is is alive and well but, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, we they, <laughs> yeah. yeah and i don't think that's necessarily a, a viking thing or obviously that played a huge part but there were parts of northumbria that were never really settled by the Vikings and carried on speaking English and had much more to do with Scotland, actually, than, than with the kings yeah. way down in the south in Wessex. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was going to say it's got a lot to do with distance, hasn't it? Yeah. But the far-flung parts of uh, England were, were the ones that were least connected to central government. Yeah, I mean, when you think how long it takes to get from, say, London to Newcastle, even by today's modern transport methods, and then think how long it would have taken back then, it is, mm. it really is a long way away. It, it mm. actually makes it all the more remarkable um, to imagine Athelflaed and Edward's achievements in uniting as much of England as they did in a time when, like you say, travel was, you know, you could only campaign in the summer because once the snows came, that was it, or the rains came and um, horses got clogged in the mud, you weren't going to be going very far. And they weren't no. rail lines getting you north, you had to march. <laughs> yeah, and, and totally reliant on, on local knowledge of how to get to places. We have to assume that they had messengers who went ahead in yeah. advance. Yeah. I mean, you couldn't. The kings were very itinerant in those days, but you, you, 
surely they didn't just yeah. pitch up somewhere and expect hospitality. They must have had people who, who rode ahead. Yeah. But yeah, incredible achievement. And and to think about mm. those lines of communication. And as you say, only being able to campaign during the summer because they're their lives were so much yeah. so tied to the earth and the seasons yeah. mm. and producing their own food but staggeringly complex uh, societal structure really but then on the other hand you know always attuned to the most basic of human needs to to be fed and to be clothed and to be kept warm i, I just find that whole period absolutely fascinating and as you say for for Applefled to achieve what she yeah. did in that time some people mm. would struggle to have that kind of gravitas and leadership and authority now. Mm. And yet she managed it. And the fact that she managed it as a woman, even in a society that was much more accepting and respectful in, yes. than some other cultures, Definitely. it's still a huge achievement. At the end of the day, she she must have achieved it by managing the men. That's the only way she yes. could have achieved it, is that her personality and abilities were, were such that she could manage them and, and they would say, oh, yeah, OK. Yes. I think I think there is one other interesting point. Sharon and I have both contributed to a, a new book about kings and queens. And the chapter about Matilda in that book does mention um, yes. the fact that at one point she was extremely hampered by the fact that she was pregnant. Yeah. And this is something, of course, that Athelflaed was not. Mm. She only had the one child. And I think it's William of Malmesbury gave us this long convoluted explanation as to why. And it was apparently, um, is it because she, she'd she had a, such a terrible, or, or she decided yes. that she was going to be chaste and religious from then on or something. It may be. And again, this this is the, the scenario that I envisaged when I was doing a fictionalised account of her life, that she went through so much trauma having the one child. And obviously, in those days, miscarriages were just as common, probably more common than they are now. It, we don't know how many children she might have had and, and lost. But the fact that she didn't have any more, I mean, almost we can compare her to perhaps Queen Elizabeth, who was never... Um, I don't like to use this word, but it'll do in context, encumbered um, by having to show mm. that supposedly weaker side of being female, that, that she had to stop campaigning to, in order to, to, to go into labour. Um, so she didn't have that. And it might have been a different story had she had more children. I think what William says about her decision is probably complete nonsense. I mean, even if she'd made that kind of decision, would she honestly have made it public? I don't think so. He was quite a fantasist. Most things he says are complete nonsense. <laughs> he's, a, he's an inveterate storyteller. Yes. I mean, yes, he, does, he does claim to have been using, um, you know, earlier sources and he has a lot to say about Athelstan that without that we we wouldn't know as much as we do about him but yeah I mean I, I think probably it was just one of those circumstances if her husband was incapacitated for the last 10 years of his life then that's probably the reason they didn't have any more children I mean yeah. that's interesting actually that William of Malmesbury says that because the same is said about Henry the first wife Matilda of Scotland she had two children, William Athelin and um, Empress Matilda, and then they had no more children. So the argument is the same with that, that she then decided, I've given you one of each, that's it now, no more sex. And it's funny that, you know, Malmesbury, Queen Matilda of Scotland, was one of his patrons. So he may have borrowed that idea or even invented it for Matilda <laughs> as well as for Athelin. Yes. <laughs> 
one size fits all. <laughs> yeah, and and again, I mean, obviously, in in the Anglo-Saxon period, uh, monks definitely were not celibate. A lot of them were married. There was a, a big move to reform all that in the in the later tenth century. But obviously, by William's time, I don't know were the monks even happy writing about that kind of thing. It perhaps made them feel a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> But I'm I'm not sure that a woman in those days would have got very far if she just said, right, that's it, mate. I'm not interested anymore. No, yeah. so I'm not sure how much it was these women's decisions. I think in Athelflaed's case, probably circumstances. Mm-hmm. Say her husband was clearly ill to the point he he couldn't go off campaigning for the last ten years of their marriage. So I, I suspect that's probably the reason but again it, it does mean that she had the one child who obviously as soon as Alpha was old enough as I say we, we have evidence that she was with her mother on campaign in 915 so only three years before her mother died but I think that that undoubtedly helped mm-hmm. you know and it's an age-old problem isn't it that that the, the women tend always to to be left at home with the children throughout history and yes perhaps they might have been fostered but we don't hear of the the girl children being fostered in the way that we do no. the boys mm. so again that's that's interesting I, I think they probably tended to stay at home with their parents more encumbered or otherwise I think what, what she did was incredible phenomenal mm. and it didn't really happen again even into to the later middle ages and beyond as I say it's only you know when do we get the first queen regnant that's with the Tudors Mm. it took a long time for for people to accept that and and even then you know Mary and Elizabeth were not without (laughs) their struggles that's for sure I mean Mary married anyway and Elizabeth was constantly pestered to get married Yes, and, and whether she made it difficult for herself in not getting married, because that in mm-hmm. itself caused problems. But but this is always yeah. the choice that the women have to face. And in mm-hmm. in the way that the, the kings, the male rulers, didn't. You know, completely different circumstances always. You've written about Athelflaed in both fact and fiction. How important is it for you to keep to the historical record, even in your fiction? I think if you're writing about a real person, you should stick to the known timeline. In my novel about Flood's life, and, and actually in my other novels, I do sometimes move events by a year or so, but I always put an author's note in the back of the book as to what really happened and, and why I've changed it. Because when you're writing fiction, you've got to strike a balance. You've got to remember that, yes, you, you're writing about the life of somebody who really lived, but you're also telling a story. And so if you don't make things up, if you don't add a bit of drama, then you're writing nonfiction. So it, it's striking that balance. What what you shouldn't do is mislead. Yeah. I think that's important mm. to, to not give a false impression of, of what the time was like, what the events were like. So what I tend to do is I, I have a little... Uh, washing line with all the the known facts pegged up and then where the gaps are I'll fill them in plausibly Mm. um, because that's where you can start you know you you imagine it's it's a it's a weird situation because you have to imagine them as real people even though you know they were real people (laughs) but they have to become characters um, and and sort of become fictional characters in order for you to to write about them in a novel in a way that you don't with with non-fiction mm-hmm. and with non-fiction of course you can always say well we don't know yes. why this happened yeah. this is what we do know but with fiction you can't you can't just sit there and say well <laughs> I, I, i'm not sure 
I'm not sure what's going on in this chapter. So you have to have some very solid ideas Mm. about why people were behaving like they were and why they did what they did. Um, And of course, that that becomes conjecture, but but they have to become sort of characters rather than real historical figures. Mm. But I'm, I'm, I'm not happy about messing about with timelines and, and giving a false impression of, of what the period was like. Um, because all my characters, um, mm. even where there are named servants, I will use those names. So I, up to now, I've always written about real people. And it would be doing them a disservice, I think, if I knowingly altered their lives. But it, it has to be an amalgam. It has to be a, a mix of, of of what we know and what my novelist brain is is making up for me and then they mm. try and sort of smush the two together as it were which do you find easier writing fiction or non-fiction oh i find them both really hard actually <laughs> <laughs> it, it's two completely different things so with fiction if i if i choose mm. to say something as long as it fits the characters and the storyline so i don't have my my people acting out of character um, mm. get away with it but of course in non-fiction whatever you say is either your own opinion or you you have to back it up with with solid evidence yeah so they're they're two completely mm. different techniques really but I mm. I find that one feeds off the other so the more research I do for non-fiction the more ideas I get for my next fiction project yeah and then I'll write about somebody in fiction and then I have to go off and research something and think, oh, that's interesting. Oh, I might put that in my next book or, oh, I might, oh, I should have put that in my last book. That's the other one. Yeah, so I've had that one. Yeah, that's that's the trouble. The more you know, the more you learn, the more you realise that you didn't know that at the time when you should have done. Right, so what's next for you? You've mentioned a novel. Are you working on any non-fiction? I am. I'm currently writing a book about murder. Um, so I'm looking at uh, a number of, I haven't counted them, but I think there's well over 100 uh, sort of juicy and grisly <laughs> murder cases that we know about. Is that sort of all periods or? Uh, no, uh, just Anglo-Saxons. So from uh, sort of 7th to 11th centuries, um, where, where we've got most of the written record. And I wanted to tell the stories because, like I say, some of them are so juicy and grisly. And we've got some amazingly weird ways that people contrive to, to murder other people, most of which, again, come from the later Anglo-Norman chroniclers. So I wanted to look at those, uh, look at the, the laws in England, um, what was going on, you know, how were people getting away with murder if they were, um, looking at what that might tell us about society but also looking at the um, the bias and the motivation of the people who were writing those stories and, and why they were writing them and whether, in fact, they were true. And if they're not, then why not? And I'm also pointing the finger at some people and accusing some <laughs> that I, I believe were guilty of murder, even though it wasn't written down as such. Clearing a certain queen by any chance? <laughs> possibly. Very possibly. <laughs> you and I... Um... Well, we don't really disagree. It's just I think possibly a certain queen might have had been involved, and you think she probably wasn't. So, 
Yes. So, well, yes, she will definitely be appearing. Yes. Oh, good. I can't wait for that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to say any more because I don't want to spoil it for anybody. I agree with Annie, but I'm not entirely sure what I'm talking about. <laughs> But I am also, I, I did start writing this this novel that I was talking about, which kind of takes off where my novel about Applefad left off. What happened to Alphen will come into it, but that's not the main thrust of the story, right. but it, it, mm. it will feature. Well, thank you very much, Annie. That was informative, entertaining and absolutely fabulous. I've loved talking about Applefad. Thank you so much for just, I mean, obviously it's my one of my favourite subjects, as you can tell, but it's just so nice to, to talk about it and, and to just keep bringing her out into the open so that people know what she was all about and what she did. Definitely. So thank you. It's been lovely. I think there are probably a few people who watched The Last Kingdom who don't actually realise that she was real. Yes, and, and that actually what she achieved was so much more than, than what is portrayed. I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I love the story of The Last Kingdom. It's, it's, it's just brilliant storytelling and it's got people talking about the period. And I think character-wise, the TV show probably got her about right. It's just that some of the historical facts mm -hmm. uh, were not quite as portrayed. Mm -hmm. But generally, yes, I mean, I, I don't like to use the word feisty woman who really would not take no for an answer and and forged her own path definitely mm. but yes I, I suspect that a lot of people think she's she's a, a figment of <laughs> mr cornwell's imagination but no she she very much was a real person yeah. that's been great i'm sure our listeners will will lap it up actually we, we've done a lot on women recently <laughs> thank you so much annie it's been absolutely fabulous having you on no thank you it's been brilliant so thank you very much to annie with that fascinating discussion on the Lady Apple Flood. Join us next time when we are going rogue with Tony Richards talking about the Earl of Essex and his sister Penelope Devereux. I've been Sharon Bennett Connolly. And I'm Derek Burks. Thank you very much for listening today and if you enjoyed our podcast why not subscribe to ensure you don't miss the next one. Goodbye. Goodbye.